Watch and listen to the talking news every day at 12 noon and 6 p.m. on Channel 96 Comcast Xfinity and Channel 30 Verizon Fios. It can also be heard Mondays and Tuesdays at 4.30 p.m. and Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. on Channel 9 Xfinity and Channel 29 Fios. Listen anytime on the BMC Podcast Network on SoundCloud and iTunes. Just search for the Belmont Media Podcast Network. And now on to the talking news. Amid vaping ban, some turn to gum by Globe staff writer Billy Baker. She's a 40-something woman uh, from an affluent uh, suburb, and she does not want to be named in the newspaper talking about this uh, because it's embarrassing. Plus, one of the best parts of her long-term addiction, other than the fact that it is safer than the addictions it replaces, is that it happened in stealth. I've been dating a guy for three years and even he doesn't know, she said. The only way her secret ever comes out is if someone notices her chewing gum and asks for a piece. Then she has to confess. It's not just gum, it's nicotine gum. Nicotine, nicotine addiction is a huge topic in the news at the moment. As an explosion of vaping-related illnesses and a state ban on all vaping products... Uh, has raised fears that people will seek uh, to get their fix, their nick uh, fix from tobacco. That concern has public health officials shining a bright, positive light on the quietest club of nicotine users, the secret chewers, who get their fix from so-called nicotine replacement therapies. Without the clouds left behind in vaping or smoking, it is a club that has long been hidden in plain sight but it is anything but small. Nicotine replacement therapies are a multi-billion dollar industry of gum and lozenges and patches and inhalers that are often known by the brand name of Nicorette. And after decades on the market, nicotine gum was approved by the Food and Drug Administration in 1984. Nicotine replacement therapies are thought to be more or less harmless. They're good, they work, they're safe, said uh, Dr. Nancy Rigotti, the director of the Massachusetts General Hospital Tobacco Research and Treatment Center. It isn't the nicotine that kills you, it's the delivery system. There's a famous quote that says, people smoke for the nicotine but die from the tar. Based on the evidence we have, nicotine by itself is not thought to be harmful. It doesn't seem to be associated with increased cardiovascular disease, cancer, and chronic lung disease, which is why the state is engaged in a concerted effort to steer vapors toward nicotine replacement therapies. The Department of Public Health is offering people a free eight-week supply of gum patches and lozenges, double what it had been offering, if they agree to accept cessation coaching. The state has also implemented a standing order making nicotine replacement therapies a covered benefit through insurance without requiring an individual prescription. This push comes at a unique time in the history of nicotine. As youth smoking rates are at a record low and most young nicotine users have come to their addiction not through tobacco but through so-called e-cigarette products like Juul. 
But the health concerns with vaping are much like the concerns with tobacco. It's not the nicotine itself that has doctors worried, it's the delivery method. One, of course, nicotine gum and lozenges were not designed to be used long term. They are supposed to be smoking cessation aids. Then again, so are e-cigarettes. But for many, each has become a nicotine lifestyle, one they're not interested in quitting. Many users of nicotine replacement therapy stay on them for years or decades. So as experts try to determine the root cause of the vaping-related illnesses, public health workers are holding up we're holding up users of nicotine gum and lozenges, even those who use them for much longer than intended, as symbols of a better way. It's a strange position for the secret gum chewers and silent lozenge suckers, as they may have kept their habit to themselves, because it has always come with a secondhand association with smoking. When someone asks you for a piece of gum and you have to shamefully admit that it's nicotine gum, it comes with a look, says Matt O'Malley, a Boston City Councilor, who says he was addicted to nicotine gum for eight, eight years, more than twice as long as he actually smoked. It wasn't quite a look of disgust, but, but there was some silent judgment. O'Malley eventually quit the gum, gum listing two often cited drawbacks, cost and his dentist's concerns about the effect of all that chewing on his jaw. And now to my colleague, Claire. Thanks, Bob. 2020 referendum looms on funding of nursing homes by Robert Wiseman, Globe Staff. A new group called the Mass Senior Coalition said it has collected about 122,000 signatures across the state to force a referendum next year on a proposal to substantially boost Medicaid funding for the state's financially struggling nursing homes. The state budget approved by lawmakers in July bumped up nursing home funding from MassHealth the state Medicaid program, by $50 million to a total of $415.4 million. But even that won't be enough to plug a continuing funding shortfall that has led to the closing of about 30 nursing homes in Massachusetts over the past two years, and more than 180 since 2000, according to members of the Senior Coalition, which is made up of nursing homeowners, vendors, staffers, and families of residences, residents. Its ballot initiative would ask Massachusetts voters in November 2020 to direct state officials to tie mass health funding to the cost of providing long-term care services under a formula using the nursing home's financial reports from previous years. The cost of labor and other expenses such as utilities and real estate taxes has been climbing in recent years. The state requires proponents to gather 80,239 valid signatures to propose new statutes through ballot initiatives next year. Coalition members say they have more than enough. Chronic underfunding will continue to weaken the state's remaining 386 skilled nursing facilities, which serve 30,000 residents, members of the Senior Coalition say. They're also supporting a bill filed in the state Senate earlier this year by Senator Diane DeZoglio, Democrat of Methuen, 
that would similarly increase MassHealth reimbursement to nursing homes. The legislature was kind enough to give us an additional $50 million in this session, but we're still underfunded by more than $300 million, said Frank Romano, one of the coalition's organizers and chief executive of Raleigh-based Essex Group Management, which owns a half dozen nursing homes and two assisted living residences in Massachusetts. Under current reimbursement rates, nursing home owners say they lose about $38 a day per resident cared for under MassHealth, which covers more than two-thirds of state nursing home residents. One reason is that nursing homes have to compete for workers with other service businesses, such as warehouses and fast food restaurants in the hot state economy. The cost of labor is far outstripping what we got from the legislature, Romano said. Seventy-five cents out of every dollar we get goes to labor costs. Now, over to Tom. Thank you, Claire. When texts become obsessions, students reflect on their habits after the tragedy. By Maria Kramer and Gal Zipperman Lotan. Aaron Halford, a 21-year-old Boston University senior, said he sometimes peeks at his texts without opening them, so the sender does not know they've been read and won't expect an immediate reply. It buys him a brief reprieve from the digital barrage. Quote, if you don't respond within 30 minutes or an hour, you hear, what's wrong with you, he said. Halford's classmate at BU, Jenny Todd, said it's common for students to take screenshots of text messages, from the funny to the mean, to share with other friends or to save as proof or ammunition should conflict arise. Frankly, it's for insurance, said Todd, 21. One Emerson College student said that when the endless influx of alerts from WhatsApp, Facebook, and Instagram became too overwhelming, she deleted the apps. Quote, you should, put, you should be able to put limits on messaging, said Nicole Simon, a 19-year-old who is studying marketing. The prosecution of a former Boston College student who is accused of driving her boyfriend to suicide with tens of thousands of sometimes abusive messages highlighted the social challenges many young people face in an age of compulsive communication. How to maintain healthy boundaries when the text exchanges rarely stop, intruding on their time at home, at meals, even when they're asleep. That can be especially delicate for those in romantic relationships where constant texting can intensify already heady emotions and increase the pressure to respond quickly, no matter what the hour. Quote, when two people are into each other and in a relationship, there's just a natural inclination to want to talk to one another, and texting provides easy access, almost too easy, said Halford, a journalism student planning on a career in music. This person wants to talk to me, and they have the ability to do so literally every minute of every single day. There is such a thing as a lack of privacy. It's almost like an invasion. Last Monday, prosecutors in Boston said that In Young Yu, 21, had been charged with involuntary manslaughter in connection with the suicide of her boyfriend, Alexander Utula, a 22-year-old college student who jumped off a Roxbury parking garage on the day of his graduation. The volume of texts between you and Ortula in the two months leading up to his suicide in May, prosecutors said it was a staggering 75,000, 
was widely met with disbelief by college students around Boston, but the students saw the tragic case as a cautionary tale about the addictive nature of texting and how it can lead to unhealthy attachments. Quote, My friend has this boyfriend and he has to text her all the time, said Grace Keough, a freshman at Suffolk University. The boyfriend is constantly asking where she is, whom she's with, and what she is doing, Keough said. Keough questions whether that this is due controlling and has tried to keep her own texting habits in check. I only text with a purpose, Keough said, like making plans to meet up or checking in on friends. Aidan Capaldi, a first-year student at Northeastern University, said the number of texts that went back and forth between you and Ertula is hard to believe. Quote, what do you have to talk about for upwards of 1,000 times? I can't even imagine, Capaldi said. That's just mind-boggling. That's constant. There's no other way to send that many text messages in that amount of time. Yet, students said they could understand how such inordinate levels of texting could have deepened the dysfunction in Utrula's and Yu's relationship. Quote, I feel like toxic relationships have the potential to become even more and more toxic with social media texts and the ability to track each other, Alfred said. Texting emboldens people to say something they wouldn't say in person. Women and men between 18 and 24 are more likely to experience par intimate partner violence than any other age group, according to a 2011 study by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Technology has only exacerbated the problem, said Lisa Melander, a sociology professor at Kansas State University, who studies intimate partner violence among young people and cyber aggression, the use of cell phones and computers to harass others. Quote, they don't know how to communicate in a healthy way, said Melander. People can say, just turn off your phone. Who's going to turn off their phone in contemporary society? You're not just going to cut yourself off that way. And the texts keep coming. Given the rising suicide rate among young people, juvenile justice advocates and defense attorneys expect more prosecutions like those against you and Michelle Carter, the Plainville teenager who was convicted in 2017 of involuntary manslaughter after a judge found she had goaded her troubled boyfriend into suicide through a months-long campaign of texting. Carter's lawyers have appealed her conviction to the Supreme Court after it was upheld by the state's highest court. And now back to Bob. Thank you, Thomas. Are you eating too many refined carbs? By Bonnie Liebman. There's no good evidence that uh, low-carb diets are a magic bullet for weight loss, but many people eat too many refined carbs, not just from sweets, but from oversized servings of pasta, pizza, burritos, burgers and sandwiches made with white flour, along with the chips or fries that are served on the side. Low-carb low diets are hot. Will they make the pounds melt away? No better than other diets. But Americans do have a carb problem. On average, we get about half of our calories from carbs, and roughly 70% of them come from refined grains, potatoes, fruit juice, and added sugars. They should come from vegetables, whole fruits, beans, and whole grains. What happens when you overdo refined carbs? 
you can end up with uh, carbohydrate-induced high blood triglyceride levels from eating too many refined carbs, says Alice uh, Lichtenstein, the director of the Cardiovascular Nutrition Laboratory at Tufts University. Triglycerides, a type of fat found in foods and in the body, climb when carbs overwhelm the liver. Refined carbs get rapidly absorbed, so there's a tremendous flood of carbohydrates, usually in the form of glucose, coming into the system, explains Lichtenstein. Some of the glucose comes from sugars and some comes from starch and grains, potatoes and other well-starchy foods. Starches are long long chains of glucose. The liver is stuck trying to figure out what to do with the glucose, says Lichtenstein. The liver's capacity to store it as a a glucotin is exceeded, so it uses the glucose to make fats. The fats get packed into triglycerides, which the liver then sends out into the bloodstream, raising blood triglycerides. The evidence that triglycerides cause heart disease isn't as strong as it was as it is for LDL cholesterol, says Maya Stampfer, a professor of epidemiology and nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. But most, most researchers would be concerned about high triglycerides, increasing the risk of uh, atherosclerosis. The new evidence from a large company-funded drug trial has made scientists even more convinced that triglycerides matter. The Reducit study looked at uh, a concentrated form of EPA in fish oil, which lowers triglycerides, says Stephen Jurassic, the assistant professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School. The Reducit participants had elevated triglycerides between 135 and up to 499 and were taking statins because they were at high risk for heart attack, stroke, or other cardiovascular event. Those who got Vasepia, the drug with uh, the EPA, uh, had a 25% lower risk of cardiovascular events than those who got the placebo. Since the reducit results were released, targeting elevated glycerides has become more of a central strategy for reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease. The American Heart Association cited reducit in its recent advice to use prescription EPA alone or EPA plus DHA uh, to treat triglyceride levels of 200 or higher. It is possible, uh, that said, it's possible that Vesepia led to such an impressive drop in risk, not only by lowering triglycerides, but also by curbing inflammation or blood clots. The strength trial, which is lowering triglycerides with a different form of EPA plus DHA, may offer some answers. It's expected to end in 2020. And now over to Claire. Thank you, Bob. Library Building Committee to present designs. The Library Building Committee and architects from Uden's LO Architecture will present library schematic designs at a community meeting at 7 p.m. November 12 in the assembly room of the Belmont Public Library at 336 Concord Ave. The Belmont Library Building Committee 
has spent the last 18 months evaluating the current library's building infrastructure and usage data, interviewing library staff and patrons, conducting wide-reaching community surveys, facilitating focus groups, meeting with community members, town organizations, and other key stakeholders, and holding multiple community forums. The final schematic designs reflect this extensive research, feedback, and input, and exemplify a library that will meet the needs of Belmont residents for years to come. The building committee is extremely excited to share schematic design of the new library, said Claire Colburn, chair of the library building committee. Belmont residents and organizations were integral to the development of the building design. We are confident that the new library will meet Belmont's needs and reflect the library's mission of providing a center for information and discovery through innovative programming, robust collections, and responsive services. The Library Building Committee was formed in 2017 after a 2016 feasibility study concluded that the current library, with an aging infrastructure, accessibility, shortcomings, and extremely limited programming space, was a poor candidate for renovation. The feasibility study determined that addressing the building's many structural and design deficiencies would result in a significant loss of usable space and would not solve the limitations that heavily impact library programming. For these reasons, the schematic designs represent a new library building. Now over to Tom. Thanks, Claire. Public meeting to be held about draft traffic calming policy by Dana Miller. The Belmont Transportation Advisory Committee, which was established in January 2019, is developing a traffic calming policy to provide a clear process for ad addressing concerns about the safety of pedestrians, bicyclists, public transit users, and motorists in Belmont, and for mitigating the problems caused by the increasing volume of cut-through traffic on our streets. Traffic calming involves building or retrofitting roadways with certain features and characteristics that induce drivers to slow down and pay more attention to their surroundings. Some examples of traffic calming instruments include the narrowing of travel lanes, speed tables, raised crosswalks, and parking chicanes. The installation of bike lanes, when they narrow the width of the road, contribute to traffic calming. While traffic calming began in Europe, it has now been adopted by many municipalities across Massachusetts and throughout the U.S. as a means of improving the safety of all those who are in proximity to motor vehicle traffic and those traveling in motor vehicles. In addition to traffic calming measures, regulatory changes, including access limitations to town roadways, can reduce cut-through traffic. In an effort to make sure that the Belmont traffic calming policy best represents the town's interests, the committee is inviting public comment on the draft policy, which can be found at a link on the Belmont Town website at https colon slash slash belmont-ma.gov. And now over to Bob. Thank you, Thomas. To Dream Perchance of Getting a Good Sleep by Dr. Gary Stanton, a uh, doctor of sleep medicine at uh, Emerson Hospital. 
Recently, Robert Weissman wrote an important article about sleep disorders in older patients. An extra hour is no sleep solution. And as he noted, up to 20% of those denied treatment by insurers should be eligible. One study found, citing insurers' reliance on a metric established in the 1970s that doesn't account for individual uh, variations. Let's be more precise. In my opinion, the insurer that inappropriately interferes the most with the diagnosis and treatment of seniors with obstructive sleep apnea syndrome is Medicare. Medicare's metric uses uh, a more a more restrictive bar than that used by most commercial insurers. That means that seniors who are more likely to have cardiovascular problems that can be aggravated by untreated sleep apnea are less likely to receive proper diagnosis and treatment than those who are younger than 65. I am sick and tired of seeing affected seniors go untreated. For the sake of our seniors, Medicare should readjust uh, its metric uh, in line with that which is accepted by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and by most of the American insurance industry. And now over to Claire. Thank you, Bob. Trouble with sleep? Consider what you eat. Searching for sleep solutions for seniors needs to go beyond probes, prescriptions, and supplements. My clients who are over 50 know that their nocturnal bathroom visits are dicey. They may or may not go back to sleep immediately. For some stress-induced insomniacs, diet can make a critical difference. One 72-year-old client eats a banana at 3 a.m. Another sleepless client eats an apple with peanut butter. Treating disordered sleep requires a range of solutions. Nutritional approaches are life changes for some, but only after a medical evaluation. Diabetes, heart disease, obesity, dementia, and cancer all have causal relationships to lack of sleep. Now, here's Thomas. Thank you, Claire. Collins Bill to Fight Lyme and Other Diseases by the Associated Press. A U.S. Senate committee is advancing a proposal from Maine Senator Susan Collins to improve research about Lyme disease and other tick-borne infections. Collins, a Republican, introduced the proposal with Democratic Minnesota Senator Tina Smith. It's also designed to beef up prevention, diagnostics, and treatment for tick-borne diseases, and it is headed to the full Senate. The proposal is named the K. Hagen Tick Act in honor of former Senator Kay Hagen of North Carolina, who died in October of complications from Powassan virus, a tick-borne infection. Cases of Lyme disease nearly doubled in Maine from 2010 to 2018. Collins describes the surge of tick-borne diseases as, quote, a burgeoning public health crisis, unquote. The proposal would require the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to develop a national strategy about the diseases. And now back to Bob for the wrap-up. Along with my colleagues, Thomas and Claire, we thank you for listening to the Talking News and hope you've enjoyed the show. We will return next week for another edition of Local News Happenings around Belmont. <laughs>